1: Welcome to Dear Hank and John.
0: Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank.
1: It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and ASC Wimbledon. John, Catherine recently started not eating meat, and I was just so so shocked. It was like like a whole new person had walked into the house. I mean, it's like I've never seen her before. That's a hard no
0: for me, Hank. That's,
1: yeah, uh, I also hated it, John. Sometimes, look, we have a lot of things we have to do in our lives. The dad joke is one of them for me, and it's not always going to go perfectly. Uh, but still, we have to do the tasks that are required of us. And I've done it now. I did the task. I would submit— And some somebody out there liked it. Some person. I would submit that of the things we have
0: to do— <laughs> You delivering a dad joke on our fake advice yeah, it's podcast indicative. is pretty far down the list.
1: It's indicative of the rest of, yes, be, but, but only because I had a number of other things that I had to do. That were Let's not imagine
0: a situation uh-huh. where you not telling a dad joke on an episode of Dear Hank and John negatively affects the universe in even the smallest possible way.
1: It would negatively affect my universe because I feel like I have created an obligation, a responsibility, an expectation mm-hmm. that I will deliver a mediocre to uh, poor dad joke and if I do not, if I cannot deliver on that, John, what can I deliver upon?
0: It is true that in strange times, it is helpful for me to do the things that I am supposed to do. Like meeting deadlines is more helpful to me now than it was eight weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And that is an example of me desperately trying to yes and your ridiculous assertion that saying a dad joke on Dear Hank and John is important. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. I, I I am happy to have your charitable Understanding of my situation.
0: Let's answer some questions from our listeners, beginning with one, Hank, that is a proper emergency, and we don't have that very oh, often. Well,
1: I'm glad that they I'm glad that they did this to the for a podcast that records once a week.
0: Yeah, and also they asked this question in April, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, dot, dot, dot. He gestures uh-huh. broadly. Mm-hmm. Lillian writes, Dear John and Hank, I just released a hundred or so crickets into my small apartment while doing research for my dissertation. <laughs> Parenthetical note. My bathtub is currently filled with butterflies, spiders, and crickets that I'm doing a behavioral study on while the lab is closed. <laughs> What should I do about this? (laughs) Crickets and Chaos, Lillian. Everything about this is gold, Hank. But the thing that is great, the most gold for me is imagining Lillian's future dissertation Mm -hmm. in which Lillian describes oh, yeah, you got to do the methods, the setting, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where it's like the crickets were contained in a large porcelain oval.
1: Yeah. So the two feet by five feet, standard size of an American bathtub. <laughs> Not saying it was an American bathtub, but it was the size of one. They, they, are, they must be in cages in the bathtub, because I think that just being in a bathtub with all of those other things would significantly affect the behavior of the insect.
0: Well, that's what I'm thinking. Is the dissertation about how captive crickets deal with, with global pandemics? Because that is an interesting <laughs> question to me.
1: <sighs> oh, God. Butterflies uh, and spiders and crickets. Man, if I'm a cricket, I'm terrified of this bathtub. And I also want to get out. So I'm not surprised that they did.
0: Even as a human, I'm a, I'm a little scared of it. Here's the thing, Hank. <laughs> I actually have a relevant anecdote, which is very rarely the case.
1: Oh, okay. I, I mean... I have a relevant anecdote, and I'm curious whether it's the same one. Years and years ago, Mm -hmm. we... So
0: far, so good. ...had a cricket when we were children. There was a cricket in our house. Mm. Do you Uh remember this? I think I do. And dad Uh went absolutely bonkers... Bonkers. Trying to find the cricket, and it would. The chirp.
1: drawers were open. the The clothes were everywhere. He took the drawers out of the yeah. dresser. The dresser was on the floor. Took all the clothes everywhere, and and the chirping would not
0: stop. It would just would be stop. periodically. There would just be a quick chirp, and by the time it was over,
1: yes. we would all mm-hmm. be like, "Where was where, it? Where did it come from? Where did it come ah. from?" And it was so, like, it was so inconsistent and it was such, like, the hardest noise in the world to pinpoint. Here's the thing. It wasn't inconsistent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was was spaced extremely consistency. It just was very, it was rare. It wasn't, like, repeated. It seemed inconsistent to us. Yeah. And so. Turns out it was, it was mathematically consistent. Basically, the entire
0: house was ransacked searching for this cricket. And I mean, we were all all in
1: on looking for the cricket. Nobody could find the cricket. And it was maddening. But only because dad had gone so hard. Yes. Like we were all like ready to go to bed and we were like, there's a cricket, it's okay. But then dad starts going so hard and we're like, well, I guess we're all in it. We're a family. Right. And so we're we're gonna we're we will also like unscrew the portable television (laughs) to see if it's in there.
0: And to be fair, it was a ridiculous situation. Like, we were talking about a relatively small amount of space yeah. in which we could not find a cricket that was mm-hmm. chirping, as it turns out, very, very regularly.
1: Yeah, and making the making the exact same noise at a very precise interval. <laughs>
0: because it turns out it was not a cricket.
1: No. It was the
0: low battery warning for the smoke alarm. <laughs> <laughs> it's hours and then when when he finally realized it it was the yeah. most like simultaneously like relief and like <laughs> just desperation desperate anger yeah oh it was gold uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway lillian are you absolutely sure that your smoke alarm <laughs> batteries have been replaced recently yeah. are these definitely it sounds like they're definitely crickets It sounds like there's definitely a hundred or so by the way the most distressing thing is the hundred mm-hmm. or so crickets because that makes me realize that right, like, if you knew exactly but if you're wrong by two or three crickets like if it's uh-huh. 102 or 97 we're talking about Two crickets, which is a lot of crickets to have yeah. in an apartment, which is
1: yeah, functionally the same as a hundred. <laughs> uh, that's the that's the real problem. So so you don't know precisely how many crickets there are, which is a huge issue. But you do know, and this is important, and it is the only thing that will give you hope in these coming hours and days, weeks, and perhaps months. There is a finite number of crickets in your home. That means this problem is solvable. <laughs> it will not seem that way. It will seem as if there are an infinite number of crickets. And knowing what I know about crickets, I don't, th- I don't know. Like, first of all, they can make more of themselves. What do crickets eat?
0: Food. Hank, that is a lovely idea that there is a finite number of crickets in William's apartment. And mm-hmm. I would agree with it If crickets were infertile, and maybe these crickets are (laughs) sterile. Otherwise, I would argue that there is a finite number of crickets in Lillian's apartment in exactly the same way that, like, life itself is finite. And- yeah,
1: there's there's also a finite number of crickets in the in the world. Yeah.
0: exactly. But I wouldn't want all of them in my house. And I think yeah. functionally Lillian might have a ongoing cricket problem because yeah. I'm assuming there's going to be some level of cricket reproduction, etc.
1: I just looked up what crickets eat because if you ca- because they can't make babies if they can't eat food. And what I have discovered about crickets is they eat exactly what you and I do. They will eat. Mm. Pretty much anything. They'll eat Mm. squash. They'll eat fish flakes. Well, we don't eat fish flakes. They'll eat eat wheat. They'll eat bread. They'll eat potatoes. They'll eat fruits. They'll eat vegetables. They'll eat meat. Wow, okay. They'll eat cabbage. They eat all of the same things that people do. So what you need to do is not have any food in your house.
0: So you're probably not going to be able to deny them all sources of food. I have a somewhat different idea, Hank, uh huh. I would see this as an opportunity, an opportunity to create an Instagram or YouTube account <laughs> called "Getting Rid of William's Crickets," in which you chart your like seven-year-long story mm-hmm. of trying to get rid of all the crickets in your apartment.
1: It's, yeah, it's uh, Instagram dot com slash where I found a cricket. I would, <laughs> I, I would subscribe to that. Do you subscribe to Instagram accounts? <laughs> I don't, I don't, also don't know if Instagram.com slash is a thing that works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is. There you go. Lillian, instead of seeing this as a disaster for your dissertation and indeed your quality of life, you've got to see it as an opportunity for social media magnateness.
1: Yeah. And potentially scientific research. Who knows what you could learn from studying these cricky cricky boys. I'd love to read a mm-hmm.
0: dissertation that's, a, that's called um, <laughs> Removing 100 or so <laughs> Crickets from One Person's <laughs> Apartment, An oh, Exhaustive God. and Indeed Exhausting Study.
1: <laughs> this next question comes from Nick, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I feel as if spending a copious amount of time on screens has become inescapable. I'm in summer school, where all of my lectures, labs, and homework are all online. The only way to interact with my friends is online. Libraries are closed, and the only way to read books is online, not to mention all of the things that were online before this. And I'm feeling constantly guilty about all of this time I spend staring at screens, and it is limiting my enjoyment of this stuff. Please help. Mortem vitat coram te, Nick. You know what that means Latin. in Latin, Hank? No, death something.
0: No, it means there will always be crickets in Lillian's apartment. That's the literal <laughs> translation.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, life uh, finds a way. Uh, um, <laughs> I think that this is such an interesting thing because because screen time is one of these things, and it, and this has been various throughout history television when i was a kid certainly was was the thing but for a for a long time like novels were this way it's like the thing that is like almost most enjoyable or that is the most default or easy to do activity we have to find ways to limit ourselves from indulging in that or engaging in that so that we can, like, do the other stuff. And so one of the ways that we do that is we sort of find the things that are bad about it, and then we remind ourselves of those things. And then we write think pieces about them, and old people yell about them because they didn't have them when they were a kid, and so it's a little bit weird, and and we worry about them. And it's totally, this is, like, a little bit annoying, but it's a little bit normal. It's, it's a thing that we inevitably do. But... In reality, playing video games can be really fulfilling and fun and interesting. Reading a novel can be the same way. Watching television can be something that you indulge in in a really productive way that constructs instead of destructs. And I think that in general, the the concept of screen time as a negative thing is something that we are having to a little bit reevaluate. Because, of course, not all screen time is created equal. And anything that is allowing us to be social right now, particularly, and also things that are allowing us to continue our education are so valuable. And we need to separate those things from this negative perception of screen time that we created over the last 20 years. You know, we should be spending time doing things off screens, but it is not always all bad. And and sort of like pretending like screen time is, is like, eating Lucky Charms for dinner, it isn't always that. It can be, but it isn't always that.
0: I disagree with almost everything you just said. Okay, then— The only thing I agree with (laughs) is that eating Lucky Charms for dinner is not a problem. (laughs) And there's, to me, like, one of the great insanities of 21st century life is the idea that certain kind of refined carbohydrates should be associated with certain meals and not others. (laughs) Like hash browns for breakfast, but not for dinner. At dinner, we have a
1: different kind of potato. Let me adjust and say that it's like Lucky Charms for breakfast, which is equally terrible. Lucky Charms for breakfast is No good time for Lucky Charms.
0: Yeah, so screen time is exactly like Lucky Charms in that it is completely fine as long as you don't overuse it. And right now the way that screen time functions in our life is different from the way that it functioned in our life three months ago. Right. And it's also hopefully different from the way it'll function in our lives a year from now. Yeah. Screen time is not one thing. Mm -hmm. Screen time is not lucky charms. Screen time is lucky charms and broccoli and spinach. It's it's what kind of screen time you're using. That said, Nick, I think if you feel like you need time away from screens, you probably do need time away from screens. And I have a recommendation for you which is to make a phone call. Mm. Because when you make a phone call and you're not talking to someone on video chat, you're not really where you are and they're not really where they are and you're not looking at their background and you're not looking at yourself up in the top corner. You're in some other space. You're in some third space that I find at least like pretty good for my brain and somewhat relaxing for my brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think making a phone call once a day is a really good habit to be in. Now, hilariously, Hank is totally right that when we were kids, we were taught that, like, just sitting on the phone all day and watching TV was going <laughs> to absolutely destroy us. <laughs> yeah. And look at us now, <laughs> stuck inside of our houses, staring at screens 22 hours a day.
1: We did it. Yeah. 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 And we and we have survived. I mean, one, one thing that... That I do really want to emphasize about this whole situation is how resilient uh, all humans are, particularly young people, but also all people. But uh, we are also much more resilient when we are able to connect with people and and sort of like feel the importance that we feel in other people's lives and ascribe the importance that other people feel in our lives and let them know that and and believe it which is real, but it is easy to forget. There's a lyric from The Mountain Goats that I've been thinking a lot
0: about amid all of this, which is, you were a presence full of light upon this earth, and I am a witness to your life and to its worth. Mm -hmm. And to me, when it comes to screen time and when it comes to everything else, I try to ask myself, is this helping me to be a presence of light? And is it helping me to acknowledge the humanity and and worth of other people's
1: lives. We have many, I think t- Twitter is a good example of this, but we have many ways of sort of like filling the craving for social interaction without actually fulfilling the need of it. Yeah. And that is, I think, really dangerous. And phone is such a good, it's such a good call, John, because there really is something different about it. All right, Hank, we got another question from Annie, who writes, Dear
0: John and Hank, there is a book that I really want to read that comes out July 7th. I believe that (laughs) book might be a beautifully foolish endeavor. Hank, your new novel. Uh I'm very excited for people to read it. It's so good. It's so uh, relevant. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. Uh, Annie goes on to say, but normally I buy books in pocket format. So this is a Canadian thing. Pocket format is Canadian for paperback, I think. Okay, All just right. because Annie later in the in the email says that she she's from Canada. Should I wait for the pocket book to come out? It just it feels so Canadian every time she writes it. Pocket book, <laughs> super cute. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good summary of how Americans feel about Canadians, just in general. Yeah, it's just we think we think y'all are just adorable, and also we're envious of your life expectancies and your. <laughs> Healthcare systems, (laughs) your timber, your space, all the space, those Mounties. Yeah. You got rocks there. I guess we got rocks too. Our rocks suck. Who are we kidding? (laughs) Okay. Should I, should I wait for the pocketbook to come out? That is so cute. I, the the repetition of it. I like it more every time. (laughs) Or should I pre-order the hardcover to have it faster? Also, I read the first one as an audiobook, and I really loved it. But then again, that means waiting, doesn't it? Furthermore, as an author, what difference does it make for you if I get it in hardcover or pocketbook or on audiobook, Annie?
1: Well, first first thing to say is that the audiobook comes out at the same time as the book. So that doesn't mean waiting. If you want to get the audiobook, please do. I'm having a ton of fun work—and I'm assuming you're talking about my book. That comes out July 7th. And I'm having a ton of fun working on— the that the audiobook right now. I care a lot about audio as a format because I consume the majority of the books that I read through um, Libro.fm and Audible. So that is my that's my world, and I care a lot about it. And I I think a lot about how it will feel as an audiobook. I am very into changing things very slightly for that medium because there are certain things that are hard to say um, or that uh, visually distinguish something when you're reading and finding other ways to sort of orally distinguish something when a, when something is changing like text format or something like that. So that's that's all stuff that I think about a ton and uh, and that I really care about and and I'm really excited about this audiobook because it is a little bit different from the first one where it where it gets to be a little bit more fun do a little bit more extra stuff because it's from, from multiple point of views. Um, it's not like a performed thing where there's, you know, dialogue back and forth, which I don't really like, but it is uh, it, it does give me an opportunity to work with multiple narrators and stuff. So, audiobook is great if you want to do that. It feels like that answers your question. But hardcover is very different from pocketbook or paperback for from the author's perspective. Um, one, you get paid more for, for a hardcover. But more importantly than that, it matters like the, the sort of like trajectory of book sales uh, being heavy in the beginning. That increases the amount that the publisher is interested in marketing the book. It it, it sort of increases buzz generally if people are sort of all talking about it at the, at the same time. So I do, authors in general, want people to sort of all read soon after the book comes out in order to create some amount of buzz.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to get any level of attention in the wider culture for any book. Well,
1: or anything right now,
0: yeah. Yeah, but especially for any book. I mean, if you think about the fact that four or five hundred books are released by fairly large publishers every month, it's extremely difficult to get broad attention for more than one or two of those books. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes publishing a challenging business in general, but like a really yeah. challenging business right now. I, I think that lots of businesses are going going through this, but it's been a very, very difficult time for for publishing and for bookstores. I understand why people get frustrated that they can't buy paperbacks when a book first comes out that they can't make that choice, yeah. like that it basically excludes them from people who prefer paperbacks from being in that initial conversation around a book. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of feel like this is an outmoded way of thinking about publishing, that being yeah. so obsessed with format. Mm-hmm. Like regular people don't really think about the differences between hardcover and paperback as anything other than like price and weight.
1: Yeah. And and like, and, and like hardness, like ability to hurt me if I accidentally drop it on my face.
0: Right. If you explain to most people that an author gets paid four or five, or in some cases, seven times as much for a hardcover sale as they do for a paperback sale, I think most people would be like, what, why? Yeah. And, it, it feels a little outdated to me, but that is yeah. the way that publishing still is. And publishing mm-hmm. is because it has been around for a long time. It's a fairly, I mean, obviously a fairly mature business by a long time. I mean, like, you know, 600 years, it's <laughs> a little slow to innovate at times. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, they've been through a lot. They've they've done innovation. Yeah. Uh, and they know that innovation Takes place on the scale of decades in in their industry, rather than on the scale of uh, yeah. weeks or months, the way that it does in a lot of a lot of the you know industries that John and I are in.
0: Yeah, but that said, you should really pre-order Hank's book. It's <laughs> called A Beautifully <laughs> Foolish Endeavor, which is also a really good description of humanity and everything else.
1: Two other things: first, library is this is the same. If you can if you can get it at the library, it's not really about the you know the. The amount of money that I make from the sale, it's about the timing of it. So if if you can if you can call your library and be like, save this one for me, I'll pick it up the day it comes out. That that may be a thing that you can do. And then you know, obviously, digital formats, audio are all all, all also good. And also Libro FM is a place where you can, instead of like bookshop.org, which lets you buy physical books from your bookstore, Libro.fm will let you buy audiobooks from your bookstore, but it functionally operates exactly like Audible. It's a subscription and you get credits and it costs almost the same exact thing. And uh, But like the, the money gets split between a bookstore of your choice and Libro, which then of course has to actually serve you the book.
0: Yeah, so it's an alternative to creating trillionaires,
1: basically. Yeah. We can call it what it is. John, this next question comes from Anne, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I have had several dreams, some of them recurring, in which Nicolas Cage is my uncle. No way. <laughs> it's like my dreams I'm in no- which John
0: Cena is like my personal trainer and life coach. who's <laughs> just always telling me I'm doing a great job and that he loves me.
1: John, last night I had the uh, recurring anxiety dream that, that I, I have had many times. And I think everybody else has also had where you have to take a class where you have to take a test for a class you haven't been to all semester. Yes. And I have a a thousand times I've had this dream and I'm 40 years old. I haven't taken a class in a really long time. But you know what happened? I I took the test instead of like freaking out about it. I was like, what? It's 2020. Like, Yeah how is this possibly going to matter? And I just took the test and I was like, I bet I got a C on that. <laughs> and at no point did I experience anxiety. I, love- I was like, given an anxiety dream by my subconscious. Yeah. And my, my subconscious was like, eh, no big. Have you seen Everything. This is a test. I love
0: that even in your dreams, when anxiety approaches, you are like, no, I'm not going to give in to you. I think think I've got better coping skills than you're allowing for. (laughs) Yeah, I have this recurring dream, and we'll get back to Annie's question in a second, but this is not my recurring dream about John Cena, although that is my favorite recurring dream because John Cena is just such a kind and generous presence in my dreamscape in a way that no one or nothing else is. But one of my other favorite dreams is I have a dream where I discover like a key and there's a door in my house that I've never seen before Mm -hmm. and the key opens up the door Mm -hmm. and there's this room in this home I've lived in for a long time that is like a wonderful new room that I didn't know about and I get to explore. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about that recurring dream because that is how a beautifully foolish endeavor made me feel. It made me feel like there were like all of these undiscovered rooms inside my mind that you kept like opening up. And it was like, I don't know, it was like reading a Jules Verne novel or something. It was so, it was great. It was very, I really liked the book. But back to Annie's question. Thanks, John. She writes, I have no particular ties to Nicolas Cage. None of us do, Annie. (laughs) None of us do. Outside of my affinity for the film's national treasure and ghostwriter, Mm. I was with you for the first half of that comment. (laughs) You
1: had me in the first half. I'm not going to (laughs) lie.
0: So my confusion as to why he is my uncle within my subconscious should be understandable. He appears to be whatever I need, some kind of sketchy getaway, like if I'm being chased by hitmen. (laughs) I love that.
1: (laughs) My question is, what do these dreams mean? John, I don't like I've just gone to the Nicholas Cage family tree, and I am astounded.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't know who Nicolas Cage's parents are?
1: No. Nicolas Cage's uncle is Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola, but yes. I've heard it both the ways. The wine magnate? I've... <laughs> I've heard it both ways. Jason Schwartzman is Nick Cage's yeah. cousin. Indeed,
0: also Francis Ford Coppola's grandson. No, that's from a different brother. It's from Talia, oh.
1: the sister. That's right. Sorry. There, are, this this family tree has has more blue Wikipedia links than any other <laughs> family tree. <laughs> oh my oh, god! Wow, Jason Schwartzman, huh? Nick Cage does have a bunch of nieces. If yeah, you know, so maybe you're one of those. It, it is apparently everyone is related to the Coppolis. First off. Annie, I've just looked again
0: at your letter and I've noticed that your name is Anne.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not, you aren't the first time that we've done that.
0: (laughs) So so I'd like to apologize for that. I'm clearly not your uncle. I think that you're having Nicolas Cage as your uncle because in the National Treasure films, he has... Uh, uncle vibe. I don't know how to say it. Yeah. A generous uncle energy. And in some ways, like you need that cool adult you can trust in your life who mm-hmm. isn't your parents, yeah. who you can go to and you can be like, listen, I messed up or mm-hmm. this weird thing is happening that I don't feel comfortable talking to my parents about.
1: And then you go kayaking with Uncle Nick and he just like takes you out on the lake. Yeah. And you talk about it. And he tells
0: you about The fact that he has one of the world's largest collections of Elvis memorabilia.
1: Yeah. Then he once bought a mirror that was so expensive, he went bankrupt. Is that true? I made that up. That just seems like an uncle thing.
0: That, by the way, is a really beautiful idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to see myself.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you're if you're totally locked with the novel but if you're not you should really <laughs> insert in somebody <laughs> who goes bankrupt buying a very expensive year. in a way isn't that what
1: bankrupts a lot of billionaires yeah in the end hmm mm-hmm. he did he did uh spend 150 million dollars on a dinosaur skull boy that seems high uh it was not just a dinosaur skull it was a number of other things uh, including two european castles it was a confusing headline. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we have encapsulated (laughs) the modern experience in such a brief amount of time.
0: (laughs) I would have really enjoyed being in the audience for that Christie's auction (laughs) where they're like, okay, so we've got a dinosaur head. Wait for it. And two castles. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, hold on, there's more. A diamond necklace and a picture of
1: yourself that gets older as you stay young. Yeah, we have the body of Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> we have a. Uh, he also bought a hundred and fifty thousand dollars Superman comic, which makes sense because he named his child after Superman. I know, not just at, not
0: like in a cool way. He named his child Cal L. Yeah,
1: Cal L. That's just the wrong. That's not my. That's not uncool. In what universe is that uncool?
0: I guess, actually, now that I think about it, if my name was kal L Cage, I would walk around feeling supremely confident all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's the thing that's holding you back.
0: I really should have named my children kal L. Cage. Yeah. And then in parentheses, green.
1: Which reminds me, John, that this podcast is brought to you by one dinosaur skull and two European castles. <laughs> one dinosaur skull and two European castles. I'll set you back about $150 million. <laughs>
0: Today's podcast is also, of course, brought to you by the Crickets in Lillian's Apartment. The Crickets in Lillian's Apartment, semi-permanent.
1: And this podcast is brought to you by Lucky Charms for dinner. It's just as bad as Lucky Charms for breakfast.
0: Which is to say that it's fine sometimes, just don't overdo it. (laughs) And of course, today's podcast is brought to you by Uh, a beautifully foolish endeavor. A beautifully foolish endeavor, uh, July 7th, everywhere books are sold and audiobooks. That is correct. But not paperbacks. Paperbacks. We also have a Project for Awesome message from Matthew Polka in Binghamton, New York, to the Tuataria Discord. Close to when I'm typing this message is the third anniversary of Tuataria, or Triataria, as we awesomely decided to call it. (laughs) Enjoying, contributing to, and seeing how Tuataria has been collaboratively created from the start of 2017 constantly fuels my spirit and my gratitude, on top of how I've loved being in a decade-long shared walk with Nerdfighteria so far. It all matters to me so much thank you tuataria woo woo that's lovely and tuataria is this wonderful community that grew out of some of the work that Hank and I do
1: And it's just a great place where people. This episode of Dear Hang John's brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free, fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week, and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house, and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online and then, like, just quickly shipped to the doorstep, it's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Giovanni, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt... John, this next question comes from Kelsey, who asks, Dear Hank and John, can you sneeze underwater? Has anyone ever tried this? Not Kelsey or Kelsi. Kelsey. It's, it's spelled with a S-I at the end, so it's confusing. Um... Not only is it possible, Kelsey, not only have I done it a bunch, but we also talked about it at length on this podcast in an episode entitled The Top Three Best Things About Sneezing Underwater. And I question whether you've listened to every single episode of Dear Hank and John.
0: I mean, to be fair, Kelsey, I question whether I've listened to every single episode of Dear Hank and John.
1: Yeah, no, I had I had uh, I had mostly forgotten about this and I was like, wait, is there wait? And thank goodness I checked. Um, so yeah. I had
0: completely forgotten about it. I re-researched whether you can sneeze <laughs> underwater. <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, if we made a podcast about whether or not you can sneeze underwater, what else that happened to me have I totally forgotten?
1: I know. Hank, before
0: we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, we did receive one important correction this week from Eliza, who wrote, Dear John and Hank, in last week's episode, there was a question about what the high seas are. My family is leaving this year to sail around the world, and so we have learned a lot about the ocean. By the way, Eliza, you couldn't have picked a better time. (laughs) High seas refer to the parts of the ocean that are not owned by any country, like the middle of the Atlantic. It can also Mm. refer to huge waves like the big scary waves. Hope that helped. I've never burned letters. Eliza. That's a Hamilton reference. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I didn't get it. Uh, but yes, th- it, that is true. And we did not say that the high seas are often defined as international waters. Mm. And th- that is an important definition. Also, I just think it's interesting that Eliza is about to spend a year sailing around the world. Eliza, good luck to you and your family. One more thing, Hank, over at the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John, you don't have to donate or anything to get this, but we're going to post this amazing picture that was sent to us by Ashley of the difference between a scuba and a tuba. <laughs> it's a very good picture. It's, good. it's high Cute. quality. High quality entertainment. Thank you, Ashley. Hank, John, AFC Wimbledon is still like so many of us living in a state of uncertainty. Still. What's going to happen?
1: What's going to happen? I mean, I thought last week we kind of figured out that it, that you guys were staying up and that the season wasn't going to happen.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, it still hasn't happened. Like, that was a report, and it seemed like a well-sourced report because there were a bunch of clubs, like, commenting on it. hmm But mm, mm, it hasn't happened. It's very confusing to me why other leagues have either decided to have a plan to play behind closed doors like the Bundesliga has, Right. Or they've decided to cancel the season entirely, like they have in France. Mm-hmm. Or they've decided to kind of freeze the season where it is, declare a champion based on who's currently winning the league, like they have in Scotland. But in England, they've done nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, okay. all of the proposals that I have seen would result in AFC Wimbledon still being in League One next year. Mm-hmm. But... But who knows? Maybe there will be another proposal. Exactly. And at, at what point like eventually I feel like I sh- I feel like I need to call the English Football Association and inform them that eventually their next season will start.
1: <laughs> and you <laughs> will not. Have, you will have had to, to decide something by then.
0: Yeah. So there is going to be some kind of like summit where the owners are going to decide Something. There has also been a rumor that League Two, the fourth division of English football, where AFC Wimbledon plied its trade for for several years, Mm -hmm. uh, might merge with the fifth tier of English football and then have a geographic-based thing where there's, like, teams in the north and teams in the south, Mm -hmm. like Game of Thrones. And that uh, would not hopefully affect Wimbledon, except it would affect them if they got relegated. Right. So there's a lot of uncertainty, just as there is in every other field of life right now. Please tell me that there is good news from Mars.
1: Um, There's fine news from Mars. So researchers have been doing more experiments to figure out what inside Mars looks like. Uh, This is a theory, uh, this is a thing that we're interested in for a number of reasons. And we think that Mars in the inside, the core is made of an iron sulfur alloy. Uh, But you cannot dig to the middle of Mars to check. You can't even dig like three feet into <laughs> Mars. Yeah, inches, even. Uh, but the InSight lander, which is the lander that has been attempting to dig into Mars, is using seismic data. So there are a, a number of functioning experiments on InSight, just not this drill thing, which is still giving everybody trouble. But in order to do that, you have to figure out what an iron-sulfur alloy actually looks like. And this isn't the thing that happens outside of like the pressures of Inside of like a planetary scale thing Mm. so obviously lots of lots of uh, weight is pushing down on the core of mars uh not as much as on earth but still a lot but we can do that on earth using something called a multi-anvil press which is basically like there's a there's two big things that push on two smaller things that push on the tips of two diamonds Uh, And those diamonds, all that pressure gets uh, focused on a very, very tiny area. And this is how we push the hardest that we are able to push and basically simulate pressures that would happen, like, on the inside of of planets. Wow. So they tested the iron-sulfur alloy at various pressures meant to mimic the Martian conditions, and at at around 1,500 degrees Celsius and 13 gigapascals of pressure, a seismic wave will travel at a certain speed. Um, So at 4,680 meters per second, that's about 13 times the speed of sound in air. And uh, so that tells us how fast like a seismic wave would travel if the interior of Mars were made of this stuff. So they were able to extrapolate what P waves in the alloy might look like at the co- in the core of Mars and that will help scientists figure out when they get all this seismic data gathered by Insight if it matches mm. the alloy that they created in this giant mm. press on Earth.
0: That's fascinating, but I have to say the biggest takeaway for me is that the next time I have to explain to someone how much pressure I feel like I'm under, I'll be able to say <laughs> I'm under 13 billion gigapascals of pressure right now. Okay. Yeah. So just take a step back, please. <laughs>
1: yeah. Anytime you get to use the word gigapascal yeah. is a win. It's a good day. Definitely, It's a
0: good day. Yeah. Well, Hank, thank you for potting with me. It has been a great pleasure. And thanks to everybody who wrote in at hankandjohn at gmail.com this week. We were utterly inundated with the emails this week, as we are every week, but this week especially. So thanks
1: to everybody who wrote in. Sorry to all the questions we didn't answer. John, this podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosianna Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Paula Garcia-Prieto. The music you're hearing now is by the great Gunnerola, and as they say in our hometown, don't forget, forget to, be to be awesome. awesome.